Go ahead and take a seat. As you do so, I, um, I want to take a minute to, to chat about these masked things. Um, I, I will say that I feel partly set up and challenged by the Lord this morning. Um, this week has been, has been challenging. Um, Tuesday to get the, the CDC and San Diego Health uh, requests at this point uh, to us to wear masks indoors just leaves you in a place of right, get, getting together with the pastoral team and just go, oh no, not again. Right? Like we, we uh, just tell you that as those emails get sent out and the, the write-ups happen and the websites get changed, it's not like, there's not, I'll just bring you behind the curtain a little bit, there's not huge smiles on our face when that's taking place. Um, but then amp it up is that, I think, I believe it was Thursday, um, to get a, a phone call from Pastor Kevin and say, hey, um, our contractor was on campus, uh, Ken, uh, Pastor Ken was on campus this morning, both independently of each other noticed that the cross seemed to be tilting a little bit more. Um, we, that's something that needs to become priority for us. To, to make sure that we navigate that and go, okay, well, um, let's work on that. And then last night at midnight, I got a knock on our door. Actually, our doorbell uh, was rung. And, uh, you know, before I go answer a door at midnight, I peeked out my, my, my bedroom window to see what was happening there. And, um, and I saw that our car that was parked on the street was now in our lawn um, because a drunk driver had hit our car. Um, the drug drug, they got arrested, and um, yeah, so I'm tired. I'm tired, and the reason I say that I, I feel a bit set up and challenged by the Lord this morning is because the second song to sing, This is the Best Day of My Life. <laughs> it was particularly difficult. And I had to stop. I did. I really did. I had to pause. And I had to pray. And I had to stop and say, God, is this the best day of my life? And then to have that followed up, you're working with God's spirit today. That we're, wherever there's striving, wherever there is, is hostility, I mean, just that to have that followed up after wrestling with this is the best day of my life and saying, I don't know, and then have to sing, pour me out, puts me in a place of, of perspective. This place of saying, God, you are doing something good in me. And you're doing something good within us. Because the reality is, is that there's a lot of anxiousness, there's a lot of, you know, inability to predict. What things are going to look like, and I know, you know, chatting with parents and saying, what is this going to mean come September? Um, I know for Larissa and I, for nine years, you know, we've, we've had one, at least one of our boys at home. And they're just like, yeah, September's going to come. And 
And we just felt like, man, we were going to be the most productive that we have been in nine years. Our ability to focus on pastoring and loving the church, being, being available to people to a greater degree. And then, honestly, now it's just this place of going, oh, what is this going to mean? And I, the big thing that I want to just lean into before we get into the message is this place of saying, don't let anxiousness, frustrations, disappointments go unprocessed. Because of the ways that it'll show up in your life if you let it go unprocessed. Uh, like the, Pastor Kevin says, is that we, we leak <laughs> as people. And if we try to bottle up the frustrations, the disappointments, the angers, the points of anxiousness, if we try to bottle that up, it's going to pop out of us in really inappropriate and uncoming ways for the body of Christ. Unbecoming ways, yeah. And so that would be my big point for us, is to stop and to say, God, how is it that you would want to work in me in these areas of frustration, um, of anxiousness. And then from there, you know, I, 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 the, the question that I've been asking myself over the past year and a half, even more now, um, with COVID is, if everyone else made the decisions that I'm making, might it make things better? That's honestly, that's just, I just had to find a simple way to approach this. And so that's, that's kind of just been my mantra through all of this. And I just don't mean like the, the way that, that this virus is, is ravaging the world, but also in relationships. If everyone else makes decisions the way that I'm making decisions, would things be healthier? would things be made more helpful? And so as a community, we, we, we have, has been our decision-making model is to say we're gonna go along with the CDC guidelines as they coincide with San Diego health officials. That's gonna be our decision-making model. And there's a lot of arguments on both sides and we recognize that. A lot, there's a lot of points of contention and we want to stay integrous to that decision-making model. Um, so that is, that is the request. Um, that is the re it, and right now, at this point, we know that it is a request, a recommendation from CDC and health officials. And honestly, I would just say this is five years from now when we look back at this time, that I think that we'd be able to say it's okay that we wore masks longer than maybe we would have wanted to or that a lot of communities around us did. But I don't think that this gives Jesus a bad name. So thank you. Thank you for walking in a spirit of grace and generosity and unity because I think that the Lord honors that kind of, a, of an approach. So, 
We're in Philippians chapter 4. And Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi. They are a community that is incredibly generous. A community that brings Paul great joy. And what's really unique about this letter to the church in Philippi is that Paul is not addressing major points of contention and disunity, and he's not addressing heresy that has infiltrated into the lives of the church. So many of other of his letters, he's writing from that vantage point, that there's something pressing that he needs to point out. And this letter becomes just an outpouring of joy because what Paul is doing is that he gets to just write a letter to a people that are partnering with him. But even though the church in Philippi, as what we can gather, is an extremely healthy place as a community, and they are in alignment with the way of the kingdom of God and, and the preaching of the good news, there are also just little things that can be refined. And I think that even in that in and of itself is a great point of learning for us, is that we don't have to wait for life to get completely chaotic and unraveled before we start addressing things in our lives. And that's where Paul writes to the church in Philippi. Things aren't completely broken. He doesn't have this sense of urgency like things need to change in terms of how they are interacting with one another and the ways that they are viewing the gospel. But they can still be made better in Jesus, more refined and continue to run towards Jesus. And so continuing verse by verse, the passage that we actually find ourselves in is Paul is writing to two leaders in the church, Eodia and Syntyche, two women, pastors, leaders, deacons maybe of the church. And there seems to be a point of contention amongst them, and we don't entirely know what that point of contention is. And so that's where we find ourselves, and I was just, you know, thinking through this, and I thought, I don't know if it's really relevant for us to view, to, to navigate a passage about conflict. Because certainly, society is the most unified it has ever been. <laughs> and the church has not seen any kind of fracturing over the past five years or so. And certainly, I know for all of us in this space that our homes never have to walk through arguments, contention, and hostility with one another. So maybe we m might not need to study this passage this morning. Philippians, I'll actually want to rewind a little bit into last week, and I want to start at the end of chapter 3, starting at verse 20. It says this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
He will transform the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask also you, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Recently, I heard um, Pastor Mark Batterson in in, um, Washington, D.C., he pastors a church in Washington, D.C., discuss uh, this thing called the overview effect. The overview effect is something that astronauts, American astronauts and Russian cosmonauts have described as the moment that they enter into space and see the Earth with the universe as its backdrop. And they say that in that moment, national boundaries vanish, the conflicts that divide us become less important, and the need to create a society that is united to care for this pale blue dot becomes that much more crucial and imperative. That it's this place of being pulled back, and so many of them have said, we thought that we were going to observe the universe, but the moment that we stepped into space, it was this observation of Earth that caused something to change within us. We saw things from a different perspective. We saw just how close we really were to one another. Some of the uh, astronauts described it this way. He says, you develop an instant global consciousness, a people orientation, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world and a compulsion to do something about it. From out there on the moon, international politics look so petty. Another one astronaut described it this way, in in spite of the overwhelming beauty of the scene, serious inequity exists on the apparent paradise we have been given. I couldn't help thinking of the nearly one billion people who don't have access to clean water, the countless number who go to bed hungry every night, the injustices, conflicts, and poverty that remain pervasive around the planet. Seeing Earth from this vantage point gave me a unique perspective, something I've come to call the orbital perspective, part of this realization that we are all traveling together on the same planet, and that if we looked at the world from that perspective, we would see that nothing is impossible. When Paul writes to the church here in Philippi, Yes, he addresses a conflict that exists between Eodia and Syntyche, but if you look over the structure of this letter, right before he writes to them, he points out a couple of things. You're citizens of the kingdom. You're conformed, being conformed to a body of glory. 
God is making all things subject to himself. Let me talk a little bit about conflict. And then right after that, he says this. He, he mentions the gospel. He mentions them being co-laborers. And he mentions that their names are written in the book of life. Paul is invoking an overview effect here for Euodia and Syntyche. That you would step back and you would see things in their proper context. That you would see the kingdom of God as the backdrop to the conflict that you're walking through. That you would see the gospel as the canvas that your conflict has been drifted on. That that would be the perspective that you would have. That that way you could step back and see that maybe we can push through this point of tension and hostility that we're walking through. That you might be able to see Eodia and Syntyche, where Jesus has brought you, what he has done for you, and what he is doing through you. And that you would see your tension with one another in light of where you live. I don't know about you, but you, maybe you've gone to Disneyland around 3, 4 p.m. You show up around that time. We used to be annual pass holders when we lived in L.A. County, and we'd show up at Disneyland later on in the day. And one of the things that you would observe later on in the day is that families weren't getting along so well anymore. And you would see, you would talk about it. And you would see it, right? You'd see the frustration on the dad's face as he realizes, I've spent hundreds of dollars for us to be here. You are going to go on Splash Mountain. And here people are in the happiest place on earth, completely at odds with each other. And Paul writes to a church. You reside in a place that is greater than the happiest place on earth. You reside in the place of heaven. And this is how you're interacting with one another. I was listening to the Bible Project uh, uh, quite a while ago and um, absolutely a podcast that I, I recommend to you. And Episode 89, if you want to go back and listen to it, um, they were speaking about metaphor, speaking about language. And one of the things that they were doing is that, see, culturally, a lot of the times that we use metaphor to try to describe everyday type things. And what you'll discover is that different cultures use different metaphors to try to describe the, the world around them. And it invades our language in ways that we're not even aware of that we'll use idioms and we'll use metaphor and we'll use analogy in so many different ways to, to try to describe and explain what's happening around us. And, you know, one of the examples might be that with our kids that we might actually start describing them in the language of, of farming and agriculture, that a kid sprouted up 
And we don't even realize that, that, that there, there's, there, there's ways that our language overlaps and tries to give us texture and understanding. And, and there was, they were talking about this. They said that one of the ways that we use metaphor it, to describe everyday things is the way that we describe argument. And the metaphor that we so often understand argument from is the language of war. And they gave a couple of examples. That we'll use words like your claims are indefensible. He attacked your weak point. His criticism is right on target. Demolished or you won the argument. And so what ends up happening is that when we approach argument from this lens that we don't even know we're wearing, it impacts the posture in which we step into our arguments. And so the moment that we become aware of this, that we might get an opportunity to reframe it. And they suggested, what if rather than using war as the way that we would look at argument, that we might use journeying. The moment that, that, that you would be able to say maybe something more along the lines of we're, rather than we're winning, or I've won this argument, that we're saying we're walking together to get to a destination. The moment that you reframe it, you start approaching things a bit differently. We need a different vantage point. We need a different angle to view things. And what Paul does for Eodia and Syntyche is that he reframes their point of contention. Your co-laborers. God is conforming, forming, shaping, transforming you into a place of glory. You're seated in, in the places of heaven. Now, with that framework, we can go somewhere in this point of contention. With that perspective, we might be able to journey together. And I came across a, 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 a commentator, a biblical commentator, and they said this. Paul insists that they lift their sights and focus on their unity in the Lord, their sharing in the gospel, their koinonia in Christ. And when they make the main thing the main thing, then they can deal with some dispatch with the things that divide them. He doesn't even say what their point of disagreement is. Because for him, that is not what is to be focused on. What first and foremost needs to be focused on is their starting point. And their starting point is that they are already unified in Jesus. And there's nothing that they could have done or will do that will change that. Because of the work of Jesus... They are sisters in the Lord. That is their starting point. I don't know about you, but when you interact with your kids, for the parents in the house, that sometimes our boys will get in an argument and in a fight with one another, and some of the first responses out of our mouths are this, your brothers. Your brothers. You look them at the eye, in the eyes and say, your brothers. 
Why are you treating each other that way? It's nothing that they've done to be brothers. It's something that they were born into. Endowed upon them, bestowed upon them. Nothing from their own good efforts made them brothers. But that's their starting point. And from that starting point, then they need to start interacting with one another from what already exists. For what has already been done for them. And so Paul writes to Yodi and Sintiki, this is your starting point. You're citizens of heaven. That's the vantage point. That's the lens by which you see one another. And it continues to be this theme woven through the pages of the New Testament. That everything that you do and the way that you see the world around you would be reshaped because of the gospel. There's nothing... Nothing in the world that doesn't get reshaped because of Jesus. Our conflict, our relationships, our habits, our attitudes, our conduct, our character, our joy, our hope, it all gets shaped because of Jesus. We view things differently because of Jesus, and we can never Take him out of the equation. He completely redefines how we view the world. He completely redefines how we view one another. He completely redefines how we engage with each other. He reshapes it. And we're not entirely sure what the point of disagreement is, but what we see is what Paul is doing. He's saying, come back to the mind of Christ. And, and he just, he does it in such a loving and encouraging way. He recognizes that there's, these are significant leaders in the church. They are co-laborers in preaching the gospel and so what he does is that, that, that he lovingly highlights that you're acting in a way that is incongruent with who you are and what you're called to do and what you are doing. One of the first points of contention that Clarissa and I had. Now listen, we've, we've had the opportunity, we count it a blessing that as long as we've been married we have shared the same workplace. And we know that's unique and that's a blessing. And even before we were married, that we, we, we ministered together, we served together. And we were setting up for a conference that was being held at the church that I was at. It was, it was a young adult conference, and we uh, kind of tasked each other with setting up the hospitality table for lunch for people. And so where people would come and they would uh, put their burgers together. And we started arguing over where the ketchup should go in the line 
question. I won't tell you what side I was on. I won't tell you what side Lurus was on because according to Paul, that's not what mattered. But it was this point in which we were there to serve and the name, in the name of being hospitable, we were fighting. And a lot of commentators, when they look at this passage, they think that Iodia and Syntyche, that the point of contention with them is that how things would go forward for the body of Christ. And so here, as leaders in the church, they were in contention with each other. The irony completely on display for us. Oh, you're co-laborers. We lost perspective. And by that, I mean the posture of our living didn't match our preaching. What we see here in this, in this letter is that it's very likely that this, this point of contention, this argument, hadn't gotten to a major point of fracture within the church. The body of believers weren't being in a place where, where we can't, we, we don't have, have evidence that, the, that, the, that the, Philipp, the, the, the church in Philippi was starting to fracture and like, I'm on Eodia's side, I'm on Syntyche's side. It hadn't gotten to that level yet. But here's what Paul did. He addressed it anyways. Because even the beginning of the point of fracture mattered to Paul. But even as it was beginning to form, he addressed it. And can I tell you that one of the things that we really value in our society is kindness. And the reason I say that is that, that, that the way that we amplify kindness in our society often causes us to push down conflict. So what ends up happening is it doesn't feel kind to bring up small points of contention and disagreement. That actually in the name of peace, we will often ignore what is broken. Come on, you can talk back to me. And we think that we are being kind. And we think that that makes it better. But what ends up happening is we end up getting bitter. And so what Paul does in the name of peace is that he does not ignore the beginning of conflict. He addresses it. He brings it up. And it feels like he might be rocking the boat. If you're sitting there in the church and you hear this letter, there's going to be crickets that you could hear at this point because everyone is likely very quiet. Oh, Paul went there. Everyone else probably ignored the little glances that Iodia and Syntyche gave to one another. Tried to sweep it away a little bit. Paul, what it meant to live in alignment with the gospel was to bring up even the smallest point of contention and move 
the church to reconciliation. And in doing so, what did he do? He said, and then I addressed you, my co-laborer. We don't know who the co-laborer is, the person that, that is working with him, but he addresses someone here in the middle of this letter to say, and then I want you to help them as well. It was Lydie Epaphroditus, the one that brought the letter to them. And so here Epaphroditus is reading out in front of them, maybe trying to not get, like, looking into the eyes of Iodia and Syntyche and knowing, like, ah, I'm supposed to help you guys right now, right? Like this, you could feel the tension, you could feel the awkwardness of this moment. But, but what Paul is doing is making sure that these women have everything that they need to move toward reconciliation. It was a priority for him. That he was going to make sure that the church did everything in her power to make sure that reconciliation took place. Not ignore it. Not walk away from one another because of it. But to bring it up. So that the church might be more unified. Because what Paul recognized is, is that if we're ignoring conflict, we are not a unified church. That's not peace. If the argument's ignored and it's not being talked about, it's, it's, it's like the leftovers in our fridge that are just getting more and more moldy. And what I'm learning is actually to wade into the points of contention because what I want is unity. So often what ends up happening is that when we're the ones that bring it up and say, hey, there's something that's going on here, often the response that we give to one another is, you're being You're stirring up. You're causing disunity in the body of Christ. But the, what we learn from Paul is this point of saying, no. The posture is to pursue unity. And in order to get there, we might actually have to bring up something that's a little bit uncomfortable. And that that would be something that we would learn to do in every area of our relationships. And so there are points. Little points in which Larissa and I are learning to chat with one another before it gets bigger. Because the reality is it's harder when it gets bigger. It gets more challenging the longer we ignore that point of contention. And so the best thing that we can do for one another is to come to each other and say, hey, I noticed that you did this. And when you did that, I felt this way. And I just wanted to give space for you to be able to speak to that. Help me understand. And genuinely mean that. Not to use that as, 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 as a weapon. Hey, I noticed you did this. But genuinely, the, Paul, the, the posture that Paul takes is a posture of reconciliation. That's the goal. That's the aim. It isn't war anymore. It's journeying together. 
I have a goal. And it's for us to be more united. That's why I'm doing this. And what you see is that Paul helps the church to live out the teachings of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5. He tells us, if you're going to worship, and you know that your brother has an offense against you, drop your offering at the altar immediately. Immediately. Come to terms quickly. Jesus isn't telling the church, ignore it, put it aside, and hope that things will get better. Quickly, immediately. That if you, if you pick up scripture and you start reading specifically through the New Testament and the, and the letters that are written to the churches, what you will see over and over and over again is that points of conflict are put on priority one. If you were to take out the points in which the writers of the New Testament are addressing conflict, you would be left with a whole lot less scripture. Because they make it a priority that our relationship with one another is everything. Everything. And so when Paul writes to the church in Philippi, I imagine that it's at this point when, when Iota's looking down at the scroll, he can see the residue of Paul's tears staining the pages. Right before he addresses them, this is what he says. My brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. What's that old adage? need to know how much you care before you call them out. That we would be a people that cry before we ever critique. Paul's the man that was on the road to Damascus and was lovingly confronted by Jesus for the ways that he was causing harm to his very body. It's no wonder that he's the man that takes the unity of the body so seriously. The man that was called brother by the people that he was trying to kill is moved with compassion so that the church would take seriously any points of contention that might exist amongst them. And to live out the message of the gospel of peace isn't to hide, ignore, or run away. We're not to be a people that ghost each other. We're not to be a people that months later find out that we're no longer together. We're to be a people 
that pursue unity, that pursue reconciliation, that pursue coming together. And we're meant to model that in every area of our lives. Now, let me just say this. There is so much hope in Paul's writing here. He writes to them in a way that did you just feel that, that he really believes that the, that the disagreement will be worked out. He affirms Iodia and Syntyche. He calls them co-laborers. He calls them his joy and his crown. He, he speaks to how effective they have been in preaching the good news. What Paul is doing is coming to them and telling them how much he believes in them. Listen, the wind of God's spirit is blowing toward reconciliation. And it's good to be moving along the ways that God's spirit is blowing. So may God be with you as you navigate points of contention. Would, be God, would, would God be with you at any point that you're walking through conflict, but you're working towards unity? Because that's the way that he's moving. That's the direction he's going. And so when you have the courage to move in that way, know that it is God's spirit and the current of God's spirit that is pushing you in that same direction. Don't swim against the current that God's spirit is moving. May the Lord be with you as you seek healthy relationships and friendships and marriages. May God be with you as you pursue that. And I also want to make sure that we take a just quick second to, to inject in there, if you ever feel unsafe in a place where there is conflict, we want to be available to you. What I don't want to do is push you in a way to say, you've got to push towards reconciliation in a place where you feel unsafe. And I want to just make sure that we give that as a little caveat in there. That the Spirit of God also cares about your well-being and your safety. And so that wisely that you would push toward reconciliation. I think it's appropriate that we go to the Lord's table. That on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He told us, this is my body, which is broken for you. And the promise there is that in his brokenness, that we would find wholeness. That in his being betrayed, that actually what we would end up finding amongst the body of Christ is love and unity. And then he took that third cup, knowing it was a cup of redemption, and he said, this is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus laid himself down so that the body of Christ might find that there is true peace amongst us. And because of the posture that he takes, 
and laying down himself for the sake of others, that we would live with that same posture because his spirit is empowering.